and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the upcoming NATO summit, with President Zelensky having gotten support to join NATO from Turkey's President Erdogan, who is holding up Sweden's entry into NATO. We'll discuss nuclear threats from Russia, which appear to have receded, but will certainly be inflamed if NATO were to go along with calls from the Baltic states and Poland, and now Turkey, to have Ukraine join NATO right away, which would make Ukraine subject to Article 5 of the treaty and oblige NATO to go to war with Russia, since it is waging a war against what would be a NATO member. Joining us is Ambassador Stephen Pfeiffer, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He has served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, as U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia on the National Security Council. He is the author of a number of books, including The Eagle and the Trident, U.S.-Ukraine Relations in Turbulent Times, and Averting Crisis in Ukraine. And we will discuss his article at Brookings, Karaganov's Nuclear Rant Ought to Scare Lukashenko. Then, with the special counsel Jack Smith looking into the December 18, 2020 White House meeting between what has been characterized as Team Crazy and Team Normal, We will assess the extent to which America is now divided between Team Crazy and Team Normal, as a Republican-appointed federal judge has decided to forbid the government from interacting with social media companies based on fringe conspiracy theories with crackpot plaintiffs. Joining us is Ryan Cooper, Managing Editor at The American Prospect. He's the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of the new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And we'll discuss his latest article at The American Prospect, Trump Judge Effectively Names Himself President. Then finally, we'll speak with Jared Holt, a senior research manager at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, where he researches hate and extremist movements in the United States and their relationships to the Internet. He specializes in alt-right and so-called new-right media, in addition to the larger culture and influence of right-wing social media. And he joins us to discuss his article at the Daily Beast, Shame Went to Die at Mums for Liberty Philadelphia Summit, and how it is time for Trump and Carrie Lake and others who are inciting violence to be held to account for the consequences. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we are in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. Thank you, and now on to today's briefing. 
And joining us now is Ambassador Stephen Piper, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs as U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia on the National Security Council. And he's the author of a number of books, including The Eagle and the Trident, U.S.-Ukraine Relations in Turbulent Times and Averting Crisis in Ukraine. And he has an article at Brookings, Karaganov's Nuclear Rant should, Ought to Scare Lukashenko. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Pfeiffer. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And just to sort of bring the uh, audience up to speed about Sergei Karaganov, he's a top Russian foreign policy expert and the honorary chair of a Moscow think tank. And he wrote back in uh, mid-June that Russia needed to lower the threshold for the use of nuclear weapons in order to break Western support for Ukraine. And if the West didn't back down, uh, Karaganov said, quote, we will have to hit with nuclear weapons a group of targets in a number of countries, going on to say that if Russia did not use God's weapon for this, not only may Russia perish, but most likely the whole of human civilization will end. Now, that unfortunately has some scary echoes going back to what Vladimir Putin said in 2018, that we have, quote, we have no need for a world without Russia. So I know Putin rejected what Karaganov wrote, saying, uh, I reject this. First, we see no need for the use of tactical nuclear strike. And second, considering this even as a possibility, factors into lowering the threshold for the use of nuclear weapons. So I'm not suggesting that Putin and Karaganov are necessarily on the same page. But there is a lot of talk of the use of nuclear weapons inside the Russian elite, and particularly from the ultranationalists. So what are they thinking? Is this wounded pride? Will this weapon of mass destruction restore their pride? Do they not understand how catastrophic a use of nuclear weapons would be? Well, I think there's a couple of things to bear in mind. First, uh, I mean, Sergei Karaganov was seen, I think, as a fairly serious uh, foreign policy expert back in the 90s. But over the last 20 years, he's become uh, more and more edgy. Uh, and it was interesting that after his article came out, a number of um, uh, Russian uh, foreign policy experts came down and really took issue with it. So I think that's the first point. The second point is, uh, going back to Vladimir Putin, um, yes, the Russians have sort of had this nuclear noise in the background ever since the massive invasion of Ukraine began in February of 2022. But I think um, while it comes up time and again, I, I think really the high point was in September of last year. And that was after Vladimir Putin said that Russia had annexed uh, four uh, provinces of Ukraine, Kherson. Zaporizhia, Luhansk, and Donetsk, and then went on to say, we will defend these with all means at our disposal. And that was sort of suggestive, maybe nuclear weapons. What Mr. Putin was trying to do was to tell the Ukrainians, these areas now that we have supposedly annexed them are different. We will fight in a different way to protect them. And it had no effect on the Ukrainians. I mean, the Ukrainians already see this war as existential. The nuclear factor doesn't really cause them to change their approach. So it, it, the threat failed with Ukraine. It had no impact on the readiness of Western companies to provide weapons to Ukraine. 
And you begin to see in places like Beijing and New Delhi concerns beginning to um, uh, arise that Russia might use nuclear weapons. And what I believe is by the middle or late part of October of last year, the Russians were seeing that one, the threat had no impact on Ukraine or the West, and it was proving counterproductive in China and India and with other audiences important to Moscow. And they begin to ratchet down the rhetoric. Vladimir Putin at uh, this group called the Valdai Discussion Club at the end of October, he's asked about the nuclear threat. And he says, we don't make these nuclear threats. And then he went on to say, well, this is the West trying to tarnish Russia's good name. And then a week later, the Russian foreign ministry comes out with a statement on preventing nuclear war, which actually says most of the right things. And then at the end of November of last year, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov is representing Russia at the Bali G20 summit, and he signs on the language that says nuclear threats are unacceptable and admissible. So I believe the peak was in September. The Russians tried to lower the rhetoric because they recognized that the threat was not working. It was proving counterproductive. And it comes up from time to time, like this bizarre article by Karaganov. And I don't completely dismiss the threat, but I also think uh, it's designed to try to affect the West in ways that the West does not really need to be affected. But is that to say that mutually assured destruction, which was what was the, essentially the policy of both sides during the Cold War, is that still in play? Because it seems in many ways that Putin is using mutually assured destruction as a shield in behind which he's able to conduct a conventional war and using nuclear threats as a way to make NATO member countries nervous and therefore lack resolve. No, I I think the nuclear threat has probably had some effect, although not nearly as much as the Russians might have hoped. But, and it's probably slow decisions in Washington and other NATO capitals about the kinds of weapons that would be provided to Ukraine. Uh, so there was a debate for three or four months about providing main battle tanks. There was a debate for three or four months about F-16s. Uh, but if you went back to February 1st of 2022 and you'd ask people, okay, the war that Russia's about to launch on Ukraine is going to be extending into the summer of 2023, what types of weapons would the West be providing? I'm not sure a lot of people would have said that in the summer of 2023 that the West would be sending main battle tanks, HIMARS missiles, lots of artillery, and preparing to uh, train the uh, Ukrainian Air Force to use F-16s. So I think the nuclear factor that the Russians have introduced, it's had some minor impact, but it hasn't stopped things. It's perhaps slowed them down, but it hasn't stopped things. Well, you have to add cluster bombs to that list, right? We have to add cluster bombs. I I think that was a difficult decision for the administration to make. Um, You know, the U.S. military has been trying to move away from its own cluster bombs and avoid using them. But I think there were several factors that pushed this over. Uh, One is uh, there is it's harder to provide. Ukraine with unitary ammunition, Western stockpiles are being drawn down, and the West has not yet ramped up the production of 155 millimeter artillery shells. That's one factor. A second factor is Russia has been using cluster bombs against Ukraine from the very beginning. Um, The third factor, I think, here is that they can be fairly effective 
in attacking the types of targets that the Ukrainians need to attack in order to uh, really launch the counteroffensive. And then I think the fourth factor is that the really concern about cluster bombs is that when when the bomb detonates or the artillery shell detonates, it releases a small number of bomb, or at least maybe 70 or 80 bomblets. A number of those will not explode on impact. And then they can remain lethal for months or years thereafter. And that's a problem, that's a risk. But it's Ukraine basically saying, we're fighting a defensive war on our territory. We're prepared to accept that risk on our territory. Uh, and then the Ukrainians have also made a number of commitments, including they will record uh, where cluster bombs are used so that that can help in demining efforts later on. So I, I think it was a tough decision, but I think in the end it was the right decision. And you mentioned the 155 millimeter howitzer shells, which the Ukrainians are burning through, and the West is lagging in supplies. They use the Ukrainians shoot as many 155 millimeter howitzer shells in one day as the U.S. factory produces in a month. But there's a South Koreans have stockpiles of them. Have the South Koreans agreed to send these shells to uh, Ukraine? Yeah, I'm not sure we have a lot of visibility on that yet. I mean, there's a lot of effort to secure one five millimeter shells. Uh, you have both in the United States and Europe efforts made to ramp up production. Um, and I, I guess, I mean, these numbers, in part because countries don't want to disclose. You know, for example, I, I think the U.S. is prepared to fight a certain number of shells, but it it has a certain minimum war reserve stock for the U.S. military. Uh, those numbers aren't being disclosed. So I think to some extent, you know, those of us in the unclassified world really don't have a great feel here. But I am assuming that the West is providing privately to the Ukrainians information about the kinds of numbers that can be provided. That allows the Ukrainians to calibrate their usage uh, so that they don't reach a situation that would be, of course, they want to avoid, which is where they simply run out of artillery shells. Well, Interesting enough is as the NATO summit begins this week in Vilnius, Lithuania, much of the focus, of course, is on whether or not Turkey will allow Sweden's entry into NATO. But on the other hand, Sweden has just said that they would support Ukraine's entry into NATO. And also, apparently, the Baltic states and Poland feel that way. So what do you think the agenda is going to be in Vilnius this week? Is it going to be about Sweden or about... Ukraine entering NATO? Well, probably about both. I mean, I think there's hope, though, that you could reach a decision or get a final statement from the Turks if they're prepared to support Swedish entry. It may not happen by Vilnius. My own view is it will likely happen, if not at Vilnius, at some time in the not-too-distant future. Um, I mean, the Turks are, are trying to reach a deal with the Swedes on this, uh, but I think there are also other important factors here. It, it looks to me, for example, like the White House has very subtly sent a message to the Turks that, you know, it would be great for you to have an F-16s, a modern F-16s in your Air Force, and it would be great to have Sweden in NATO. I think that there's probably a linkage there. And my guess is privately the Turks have, made to have been made to understand that a U.S. decision to provide the modern F-16s that the Turkish Air Force wants, you know, will happen you know, after Sweden has been allowed entry into NATO. So I think that's a resolvable issue. On the question of NATO-Ukraine, uh, the, there are a number of NATO members who have said they are prepared to support an invitation to Ukraine to join now, but that's not yet the consensus view. 
And I think there's still a significant number of countries that say it's hard to bring Ukraine into NATO while Ukraine is at war with Russia. Because the obvious question is, let's say on Monday, or well, the summit begins on, um, on uh, Tuesday. If Tuesday uh, you, NATO says to Ukraine, you're in NATO, on Wednesday, does that then mean that NATO has to go to war with Russia based on Article 5? So I, I don't think Ukraine is going to get the invitation that Ukrainians want. My guess is NATO will produce a number of uh, proposals at, that are being worked with the Ukrainians that will draw Ukraine closer to NATO. And, and what I would like to see come out of Vilnius, I'm, and I'm not sure it will happen, but I would like to see is some kind of a roadmap that says, here is the path that Ukraine takes to ultimate membership in NATO, because I've become convinced that ultimately the best security guarantee for Ukraine is that membership in NATO. Well, of course, Erdogan, who just got himself reelected in a pretty rigged election, I don't know the extent to which he's being bribed by the Ukrainians because his son-in-law produces the drones that Ukraine uses, and they, they lose about 10,000 drones a month. I mean, it's an amazing amount of attrition going on. And the problem with the, with the Turkish drones that are manufactured now in Ukraine are that they don't have frequency hopping, so the Russians are able to shoot them down. But obviously, this is a, a link, shall we say, without using the word payback, between uh, Zelensky and, uh, and Erdogan. Well, I, I mean, I, I think Erdogan's occupied an interesting position. I mean, he's kept the line of communication open to uh, Moscow, you know, but also he has provided arms to Ukraine. Um, and uh, when uh, President Zelensky was in um, in uh, Turkey yesterday, uh, uh, Erdogan said that uh, he would support uh, Ukrainian membership in NATO. Uh, so there's, a, there's a, I think, a, a complex policy that uh, Erdogan is pursuing um, but it has generally been fairly supportive of Ukraine. So back to Karaganov and your article at Brookings, Ambassador Piper. What are you suggesting here in terms of what's going on with nuclear weapons now being deployed in Belarus? Now, Lukashenko seems to be almost a caricature of a, of a tin pot dictator, he just actually invited the Western press in the other day because he played a prominent role in de-escalating the, what Putin called a mutiny against him by Prigozhin. But according to uh, German intelligence, the BND, they did some intercepts of conversations at the time between Lukashenko and Prigozhin. And it doesn't look as if Prigozhin ever even went to Belarus. He just sent one of the, or two of his planes over with a body double. So... What do you think's going on there? What's he grandstanding about? And I also want to talk to you, obviously, about some of the crazy stuff he's been saying about nuclear weapons. But let's just touch on Prigozhin, because a lot of people are interested in what, what Prigozhin's fate is. Yeah, I'd separate the two issues. I think, I think there's Belarus and nuclear weapons, which actually predated the Prigozhin military mutiny two weeks ago. And I have to confess, um, I, it, it's very hard to understand what happened with Prigozhin. I mean, in the last two weeks, so remember, two weeks ago on the morning of June 24, Vladimir Putin says they are traitors, they will be brought to justice. Ten hours later, all is forgiven. Prigozhin supposedly going to Belarus. His fighters will have a choice of either going with him to Belarus or integrating into the Russian military, or uh, they can just retire and go back to Russia. 
and all charges have been dropped. And then two days later, well, maybe the charges haven't been dropped. And two days after that, the charges have been dropped. And then you have uh, earlier this week, uh, uh, Lukashenko coming out and saying, well, Prigozhin's not here. He's in Russia. And the reports in Russia that he's been you know, wandering around freely in Russia, uh, that uh, assets that were seized from them have been returned to him by the, uh, by the Russian security forces. And then in one of the more bizarre statements made by the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, and he's made a lot of bizarre statements, when he was asked about uh, Prigozhin in Russia, he basically says, we don't have the ability or the desire to track him. And that's just ludicrous. I mean, here's somebody who led a military mutiny. You know, one of the biggest shocks to the authoritarian system that Putin has built over the last 20 years. And now the Russian government doesn't care where he is or what he's doing. So I, I just have this is a very uh, unclear situation. And my guess is uh, we may learn more uh, in coming days or it may take a while longer to figure this one out. Well, it seems now that the Kremlin's policy vis-a-vis Prigozhin is is a smear campaign to reduce his appeal to the ultra-nationalists. At the end of the day, he may end up in the gulag or or falling from a seventh-floor window. But just touching on what you wrote at Brookings about Karaganov's rant and how it applies to Lukashenko, now that he has nuclear weapons on his soil, one of the things that you point out in the articles in, in in NATO war games, they're always careful if they if there's ever going to be a use of nuclear weapons, it would they try to avoid having one land on Russian soil. So by having nuclear weapons in Belarus, that lowers the threshold for NATO to use nuclear weapons against Belarus. Is that your argument? Well, it's it's a little bit different than I mean. I mean, first uh, again, I, I see this idea. I mean, first of all, the nuclear weapons that are either have been or are about to be deployed into Ukraine, I'm sorry, into Belarus, are tactical nuclear weapons, and they will remain firmly under Russian control. I mean, Lukashenko is not now a nuclear power. Um, I see this more of as a psychological game, because one, if you look at the number of nuclear weapons that the Russia has near Ukraine in Western Russia. And if you uh, believe, as I do, that the Russians either have or will soon have nuclear warheads in the Kaliningrad exclave that's sandwiched between Poland and Lithuania on the Baltic coast, basically you know, having nuclear weapons in Belarus doesn't give the Russians the ability to cover many more targets that they can't cover already from Russian territory. Uh, so I don't see this as affecting the nuclear threat to Ukraine. I don't see it as affecting the nuclear threat to NATO. Um, It's it's designed as a psychological move. And the NATO response, to my mind, ought to be just, you know, that that doesn't change things. Now, the vulnerability, I think, that uh, Lukashenko has introduced here is, if you go back to the Cold War times, the 60s, 70s, and the 80s, when NATO did war games, and, and at that time, remember, because there was a significant Soviet and Warsaw Pact conventional advantage, such that NATO planning said there's a fair prospect that NATO would begin to lose at the conventional level and then face the choice, should it use nuclear weapons or should it basically face defeat? And so when you then consider use of nuclear weapons, where were the targets? 
and and sometimes we should hit the Soviet Union, but others said, well, maybe that might be too provocative, too escalatory, where we can hit the non-Soviet Warsaw Pact states, East Germany, you know, the People's Republic of Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia. What's happened, of course, in the last 40 years is all of those non-Soviet Warsaw Pact members are now members of NATO. And by his association of Belarus with Russia, uh, Lukashenko has created kind of an alternate target. And so um, in a war game I participated, this was organized by, uh, by a, a Washington think tank six or seven years ago. The Russians had used a nuclear weapon to attack American ships in the Baltic Sea. And those pushing for a nuclear response said, well, in that case, it's too escalatory to strike Russia proper. However, there was a Russian uh, brigade in western Belarus, and that was the target. And what I understand, and it's now been fairly widely reported, is during the Obama administration, senior administration officials played a game in which they were faced with how to respond to Russian first use of nuclear weapons. And the response was two nuclear weapons delivered against targets in Belarus. That was even before Lukashenko agreed to host nuclear weapons on his territory. So I, I'm not sure Lukashenko has thought this through, but it does seem to me that were the Russians ever to use nuclear weapons first, uh, Lukashenko has offered up targets in Belarus as a likely point for uh, retaliatory strikes. Well, thank God these are war games and <laughs> none of this is happening yeah, in the I, real world. Um, but, and I uh, think, I mean, this is basically, I think, I think the, the sides basically understand, and I think that sober-minded people in Moscow also understand you know, once you cross the nuclear threshold and you use, you know, even if it's just a small tactical nuclear weapon, the focus is not going to be so much on, well, that was a small nuclear weapon as opposed to a large nuclear weapon. The focus is going to be on, for the first time in nearly 80 years, nuclear weapons abused in war. And at that point, the consequences become unpredictable. A Pandora's box has been opened. And my guess is most strategists in the Pentagon but also their counterparts in the Russian Ministry of Defense will understand that once you begin to use nuclear weapons, after you've used a few, you may get onto a cycle where it's very, very hard to stop. Well, Stephen Piper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Ambassador Stephen Piper, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs as United States Ambassador to Ukraine and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia on the National Security Council, and is the author of a number of books, including The Eagle and the Trident, U.S.-Ukraine Relations in Turbulent Times, and Averting Crisis in Ukraine. And he has an article at Brookings, Karaganov's Nuclear Rant, or to Scare Lukashenko. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of the extent to which America is now divided between Team Crazy and Team Normal. As some worn victory, some downfall, private reasons, great or small, can be seen in the eyes of those that call to make all that should be killed to crawl, while others say don't hate nothing at all except hatred.
Disillusion words like bullets bark as human gods aim for their mark. Make everything from toy guns that spark to flesh colored Christ that glow in the dark. It's easy to see without looking too far that not much is really sacred. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ryan Cooper, the managing editor of The American Prospect and the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of a number of books, including How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And his latest article at The American Prospect is Trump Judge Effectively Names Himself President. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ryan Cooper. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Ryan. And there's a lot of focus now, of course, on the crazy December 18, 2020 meeting in the White House with uh, what's been described as, on the one side, Team Crazy and the other side, Team Normal, where Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, General Mike Flynn uh, were all screaming at the White House lawyers who were Team Normal about all kinds of crazy plans of military coups, etc. And so in a way... Do you think that America could be divided into Team Crazy and Team Normal? Um, yeah, I certainly think you could. Uh, you know, it it would be, as you say, a sort of uh, cross-partisan difference there because there are a number of Republicans who, I don't know if you could necessarily call them on Team Normal, but at least they're sort of like within spitting distance of it. And then you have the hardcore of the Republican base, which is just absolutely out of its mind. Um, and yeah, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the, these are t- people who are, are deep in the well of utterly unhinged conspiracy theory paranoia and willing to do anything to seize, you know, dictatorial powers for their, their movement, you know, God Emperor Trump and, uh, yeah, the I guess thankful think we should be thankful uh, to some degree that there's we're still a few people left in the Republican Party who were not willing to just like do a straight up military coup um, back then. Well, apparently, Special Counsel Jack Smith's looking into this meeting, and a lot of the punditry seem to think it's a key. It's likely to lead to some kind of indictment. But in any case. Trump is the head of the Republican Party, clearly, and he's the Republican frontrunner. So he's like the leader of Team Crazy because he is crazy. He's dangerous. He's reckless. He's stupid. He's ignorant. He's sadistic. He's petulant. He's childlike. I could go on. That's the part that I don't understand. And now you've written about a federal judge who has bought into some of this kind of QAnon-type craziness. This is, we're talking about Louisiana District Court Judge Terry Doty, uh, who issued a temporary injunction prohibiting federal agencies, including the FBI, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Census Bureau, the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, and many others, from even talking to social media companies with the purpose of, quote, urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing in any manner the removal, deletion, suppression, or reduction of content containing protected free speech. So this is this bizarre... Uh, right-wing lunatic fringe notion that somehow social media is suppressing right-wing speech? Haven't they heard that Elon Musk has taken over Twitter? What, <laughs> what's going on here? 
that that was a kind of funny subtext to the, the complaint. You know, they named all these instances and then Biden and like Merrick Garland are the defendants. But a lot of them happened under Trump, the things they're descri- describing. Um, but, yeah, you know, th- this is, as you say, this this conspiracy theory that that the government is working to, uh, you know, working hand in glove with the management of social media companies to suppress conservative speech. You know, whenever your uh, grandkids won't speak to you anymore, that's because the FBI has, uh, you know, they've done deep state operations on your grandkids. And and that's why they can't see your emails or your Facebook posts. Um, And that's why your your posts, you know, on Twitter pre Elon Musk never got any retweets. It was because the algorithm you're being shadow banned, man. And this this lawsuit basically buys into that whole thing, a whole narrative, hook, line and sinker. You know, the government did uh, prior to the run up to the election, you know, they, they would just do what anybody on, on on Twitter or any other, you know, these social media sites would do, which is flag posts. And then sometimes they would email people, you know, you click the button. It's like report this post to Twitter that it violates Twitter's terms of service, which, you know, it's a private company. It can have them. Um And among those, you know, probably the most important one was misinformation about the pandemic or the COVID vaccines. These were the things that they were most concerned about that. And latterly, you know, attempts to to, uh, influence the election through, you know, illegal misinformation about when the election happens. You know, that can be potentially a violation of people's civil rights. Um, But, you know, in the vast majority of his cases, which are only a few thousand of them, the Twitter and uh, the other companies, they, they left them up, you know. Uh, Trump only got banned after he did January 6th. Um, and so, yeah, this this whole narrative is completely insane. And uh, it's quite disturbing, you know, that if that a federal judge feels himself entitled to just say, all right, big chunks of the government, you can't talk to these companies anymore about like getting rid of, you know, misinformation about the deadly pandemic. You know, you can't even talk. You can't even mention it. You can't discuss it at all. It's like, who are you to make this decision, buddy? Right. Well, Musk, of course, started this whole lunatic conspiracy theory, saying that the previous owners of Twitter had somehow were guilty, and he supposedly provided information to uh, this character, Matt Taibbi, who's one of the main influences of Seymour Hirsch. You know, he, he, he told Cy Hirsch how much money he was making out of his Substack page, and Hirsch should do the same, write a Substack. So Hirsch goes out and writes this ridiculous conspiracy theory about the U.S. government blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline when it's pretty clear that the Ukrainians did it for obvious yeah. reasons. But Coma, that one of the lunatics, the bag of lunatics in the House, his government oversight committee had a hearing, didn't they, at which... Taibbi and the other witnesses made absolutely no sense that they had the forum to produce this conspiracy theory about Hunter Biden's laptop being suppressed or information about being suppressed, and they didn't deliver the goods. And in fact, Comer was going to deliver the goods with a key witness that suddenly disappeared. I mean, this is farcical. Yeah, the whole thing, you know, it's like when he Taibbi was before Congress, you know, he made like a couple of elementary errors. You know, he mixed up the the, um, you know, Center for Election Security with like the cyber 
cybersecurity. I forget the name of the agency, but the, but basically he mixed up a, an actual government department in the Department of Homeland Security and the a private nonprofit that like studies this type of stuff. And you have basically this collection of agencies that do, you know, frankly, fairly half-hearted work around trying to like s study like how misinformation happens on these platforms. And they're just blowing it all out of proportion with this like spooky narrative. Oh, leaked, leaked information that we got from Twitter, you know, straight from the horse's mouth. Look at it. And it's just like there's nothing there. You know, the 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 story doesn't hold up. But, you you know, you sort of like take things out of context, blow them out of proportion and exaggerate stuff and then ignore the fact that like the last president tried to overthrow the government. Isn't it legitimate to like do something about this sort of election misinformation? Isn't there more important things than like the FBI talking to Twitter? Um, you know, the like fascist demagogue who's trying to destroy the Constitution and make himself dictator for life. That would seem to be like more important than this. But no, now it's dogma on the right. They're going to be talking about this forever. So. It is laughable, and we, you know, we started out with the dichotomy of America being between team crazy and team normal, and we don't know what the numbers are. We don't know how many people support Trump, and whether or not he could be re-elected president. So, you know, team normal has got to get their act together, don't you think? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um... You know, I think this it's it's going to be a political question. You know, I don't think that um, Biden is going to be guaranteed victory. You know, his uh, approval rating is quite low, um, especially compared to where it was in 2020 when he was popular. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I think you you look at in 2022, uh, basically the mood of the country, I think it's fair to conclude is that Republican. The average, the median voter is sick of team crazy. They're sick of the abortion nonsense. They're sick of people like, you know, to suppress this trans children. We're going to put in like government genital inspectors at every public restroom. You know, like people are sick of hearing about this nonsense, about the propaganda and the hysterical shouting all the time and the really unpleasant people at school board meetings. Like, like just enough of that stuff. People would like to just you know, go to the football game, you know, and have a beer and, and not uh, have people screaming about like, you know, imaginary satanic pedophiles. Um, and, you know, the only way uh, to get to that situation is to is to defeat the, the lunatics. And, you know, if I were to guess, I would say the real hardcore is uh, about 30 percent of the population. But, uh, you know, Trump, uh eked out a victory in 2016. He got really close in 2020, so it's definitely not uh, taken for granted. But the the means by which conspiracy and stupidity and, and all of this crazy stuff is being transmitted is largely social media. And I yeah. just wonder where, you know, maybe this new uh, threads Zuckerberg's launching, which has already gotten about 100 million users in a few days so it could really challenge twitter that might be a really good thing but uh, in general i just don't know what plans there are to kind of go after the this sort of sewer of trolling and, and right-wing disinformation i mean one of the examples in fact there's a good article 
by Amanda Marcotte at Salon on this Erica Marsh story, which is the right wing made up this left wing blogger called Erica Marsh, the hot girl at the resistance tweeter. And, you know, they <laughs> they portray portray her or, or she's offering up all of these sort of airhead snowflake liberal memes and it's all made up by a right-wing troll but it sort of does two things it makes the left look like snowflakes as they as the right likes to call them at the same time it riles up the right-wingers who can't stand erica marsh even though she's an invented character but i was very struck by the last paragraph of amanda's article she said for bagger trump conservatives quote it's not even really so much about lying as it is waging war on the concept of truth itself. The goal isn't to fool people so much as it is to deprive truth of all social value. They want a world where what they want to believe is true and what is actually true is not relevant. And that's very similar to Peter Pomerantsev's uh, analysis of how Putin has taken over the the minds of Russians and uh, the information space. He wrote a book called... um, nothing is true and everything is possible. Is that where we're heading or is that what we've become? I think it's certainly a possibility. You know, you, you're right to say that I think it may be sort of subconsciously even that this is sort of the goal of the right-wing media complex to just like clog up everything with all these shouting narratives that just people throw their hands up and be like, I don't know what anything is about anymore. There's no consensus reality. I just, I don't care. I don't want to hear about it. Um, and yeah, you know, one of the really unfortunate things about Elon Musk taking over Twitter is that prior to that, prior to him buying it, Twitter was one of the better places about dealing with this type of misinformation. You know, they had banned a bunch of the worst anti-vaccine conspiracy theorists and of course when musk bought it he brought them all back all the like you know nazis some of them temporarily like like kanye west uh and you know with with facebook is was much worse than than twitter uh pre-musk and you know you can see on that new threads app all the right wingers are going over there testing the boundaries you know to how they could say slurs by like uh, doing an accurate acrostic across multiple posts, um, you know, or putting like uh, asterisks in there. And I don't have any confidence in Mark Zuckerberg. He doesn't care about anything. You know, the man is he's like a, a robot. And so, you know, maybe the best possible situation is that none of it works, like like to just social media just kind of collapses in popularity and influence and people go back to a much more fragmented inter- Internet that you that I frankly much preferred, uh, just speaking personally, as it existed before the dominance of these huge platforms. You know, Facebook is largely a ghost town when it comes to anybody under like 45 um, and, you know. If Twitter dies and it seems to be dying, um, you know, maybe we need to go back to like some more personal, you know, blogs and websites and stuff like that. And that would maybe allow us to, you know, develop a a different, you know, make it harder, at least for just utter lies and insanity to spread at hyper velocity through the the algorithmic uh, propagation of content. But, 
you just have to see how this sort of like battle shakes out in the in the platform space. But this war being waged on the concept of truth itself by right wingers and fascists who are much more active in the in the information space and in social media, it lays the groundwork for a fascist takeover. That's what happened in Russia with Putin's takeover. And yep. it's not in any way harmless. I mean, this, no, this, no, no. this is Trump's, he's laying the groundwork, and the only truth is him, and uh, he's the I, savior. He's both uh, the arsonist and the, and the fire brigade. Yeah, I, I think, th- yeah, no, I absolutely agree that this, the, the fascist demagogy and the right-wing propaganda machine are very dangerous, and they, they do give um, the conservative movement, uh, the advantages of unity and uh, quick coordination. You know, you just have these ideologues like Chris Rufo. They they come up with a new talking point. There's a new goal. We're going to do trans genocide. We're going to get rid of all these people. And then that becomes the legislative agenda in like 25 states. But I think it also gives them the disadvantage of not being able to behave tactically with respect to public opinion. All these people are convinced that that, that the, the majority is with them. If, they're, if they ever lose an election, it's because of some sort of fraud. And so they overreach themselves. Like with uh, Dobbs, you know, I don't, I don't think you have Democrats doing so well in the 2022 midterms without the Dobbs decision, which is horribly unpopular. That's a, that's, that decision is like 10, 20 points underwater, depending on the poll that you see. And then it's created a huge uh, public relations problem for Republicans because every couple of days there's a new story coming from Texas or Florida or someplace about a woman who needed an abortion to live and almost died because the doctor was too afraid, uh, you know, to like get rid of some, you know, fetus with a uh, the, with a terrible deformity or something that was going to die anyways. Um, and so I think this. It provides an opportunity, you know, in so far as that Republicans can't help themselves. They 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 are wedded to an incredibly unpopular and extremist agenda that the majority of Americans reject out of hand. And so the question is just like, uh, you know, <laughs> lev- uh, mobilizing that silent majority, as it were. Uh, but, you know, this this time in a good way. Right. Well, Ron Cooper, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And again, I'm speak with Ron Cooper. He's the managing editor of the American Prospect. He's the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of a new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And his latest article of the American Prospect is Trump Judge Effectively Names Himself President. We're going to take a brief station break, back looking into how it is time for Trump and Carrie Lake and others who are inciting violence to be held to account for the consequences. When you care about the issues of the day Check your facts on Wikipedia You can get into an argument right away If you're on social media The world is changing everywhere With a speed that couldn't be speedier But you feel so ahead of the curve When you're on social media Yeah. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jared Holt, a Senior Research Manager at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, where he researches hate and extremist movements in the United States and their relationship to the Internet. He specializes in alt-right and so-called new-right media, in addition to the larger culture and influence of right-wing social media. And he has an article at the Daily Beast, Shame Went to Die at Mums for Liberty, Philadelphia Summit. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jared Holt. Hey, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Jared. And the Washington Post is reporting now a serious uptick in threats against federal prosecutors, uh, like, for example, Jack Smith, who Donald Trump has singled out on a number of occasions, in effect, riling up his MAGA followers against federal law enforcement and the FBI has been demonized uh, endlessly by not just Trump, by a lot of uh, Republicans, the chairs of various committees, etc. And in a broader sense, you know, you've got people like Carrie Lake. She was saying uh, just recently, I'll quote her, I have a message tonight from Merrick Garland and Jack Smith and Joe Biden and the guys back there in the fake news media. You should listen up as well. This one's for you. If you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. And I'm going to tell you, most of us are card-carrying members of the NRA. Then she went on to add, that's not a threat. That's a public service announcement. And this was recently in Georgia before at a GOP rally. So when are we going to get to the point, Jared, where people like Trump and Carrie Lake and others are held responsible for this rhetoric. It's bad enough having these lone wolves and loose cannons out there doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But surely we have to go after the source, don't we? Yeah, it's, you know, First Amendment law in the U.S. makes that kind of tricky, but the, you know, sort of feeling you have is one that I have a lot, you know, especially thinking about things like January 6th. Uh, you know, close to a thousand people have been arrested for their roles in January 6th. But when it comes to the folks that motivated those people or, you know, filled their head with the kind of garbage that, you know, made them feel passionate enough to commit an assault on the democratic process, a, a lot of those people have kind of walked away scot free. I mean, you know, you could argue that. Trump and you know some other folks are facing uh, civil litigation or different lawsuits, um, but for their role in stirring up the crowds, uh, you know for the most part they've kind of just been able to get away with it, uh, even as you know public consensus and you know the January 6th committee and all loads of research and retrospection on uh, that kind of event has come to a pretty unanimous conclusion that it wouldn't have happened uh, without the instigating from these high-level figures. Um, so when is it going to be time that we hold folks like that accountable? I I don't know. I would hope that it's soon. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, until that's figured out, unfortunately, we have to contend uh, with the loads of risks that come when you have high visible public figures and elected officials or in Carrie Lake's uh, instance, you know, 
uh, rejects from the ballot, uh, but still otherwise fairly high profile figures engaging in that kind of rhetoric. Uh, because, you know, even though today it's harder for these folks to really, you know, churn up a big crowd, you know, thousands of people the same way they did around something like January 6th or during the Stop the Steal movement, you know, that kind of rhetoric, and especially when it's around, you know, big news events and big sort of, you know, political conflicts can serve as instigators for, uh, you know, the most hyper-engaged to do terrible things like threaten federal prosecutors or, you know, in the rare instances, but tragic instances, you know, go on to actually commit violence and hurt others. But already, for example, I mean, the frightening part are, are the lone wolves, not crowds like the January 6th mob that stormed the Capitol. I mean, for example, just a few days ago, he was actually one of these January the 6th insurrectionists who's apparently on law enforcement radar. He was obviously given the address of where Obama and his family live in Washington, D.C., from Donald Trump, of all people, from Truth Social and showed up there in the neighborhood, was stalking the house. He was in possession of a couple of 9mm pistols with a 400 rounds of ammunition, and he ran away from the Secret Service, but they've arrested him. I mean, the link between Trump posting Obama's address and this crackpot showing up is pretty clear. And prior to that, Trump posted a, a picture of himself on Truth Social holding a baseball bat next to a portrait of Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA. He's now got a lot of bodyguards, needless to say. So I don't understand how the only reaction to that kind of behavior is to have to have more bodyguards. It would seem to me that this goes beyond the protection of the First Amendment. Yeah, and, you know, that's a a question that might be able to be unpacked a bit more by, you know, a, a brighter legal mind than myself, right? But um, I do know I have spoken with people through the years who have been trying to to think about these issues. Folks like uh, you know Mary McCord has uh, the you know Constitutional Advocacy and Protection Institute uh, at at Georgetown, but it's it's kind of a tricky question, right? Um, you know, the Supreme Court has not been you know particularly uh, you know open. To entertaining arguments uh, that, you know, what is generally considered First Amendment uh, freedoms and leeways should be narrowed in that kind of way. Uh, just recently, the Supreme Court gave a ruling on a case that had to do with online threats and sort of struck a weird middle ground uh, where, you know, the requirement is having to prove a certain amount of, of recklessness or a certain amount of disregard um, which I think will, you know, generally be kind of difficult for prosecutors to prove in in cases like this going forward. But um, you know, in a general sense, though, I completely understand it is a bit maddening uh, to watch this playing out, you know, sort of clear as day. And it it seems as if you, you know, if any other like normal person was engaging in this kind of behavior, I think a lot of folks would sort of expect law enforcement to have some kind of reaction. Uh, but it seems that, you know, on the federal level, at least, a lot of them are sort of, you know, sitting there and shrugging their shoulders, um, which 
can be, you know, just almost hard to comprehend, I think. But the Supreme Court is heading in the other direction because they've just agreed to hear a case in their next term, which begins in October, where they'll be looking in to uphold a ruling that basically forbids law enforcement from taking firearms away from people under domestic violence restraining orders under the excuse that that violates the Second Amendment. So, in other words, dangerous people who haven't actually killed anybody yet, and that could be both domestic and people like the guy that showed up at Obama's place, they're not going to be restrained in any way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's certainly... If the ruling goes the way that we expect it to go. Yeah, uh, you know, there haven't been a whole lot of surprises in that sense with uh, Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court as it's made up now. Every once in a while they pull something out that, you know, you you think, uh, yeah, like I I forget who it was, but, you know, some judge wrote an opinion that had to do with, uh, you know, Native American rights that I kind of surprised some folks and caught them off guard. Yeah, that was a ghost right? Yeah. Yeah, and and but uh, but generally speaking, when it comes to things like this, um, uh, you know, especially when it touches you know hot button conservative issues, uh, the the court can be pretty predictable. So I, right. yeah, it it definitely seems like the the progress is going sort of the wrong direction there. So just in closing, then, Jared, uh, I just wanted to touch on. On uh, your article, The Daily Beast, Shame Went to Die at Moms for Liberty, Liberty's Philadelphia Summit, uh, which you profiled here. It's a bizarre mix of people, very far right, very <laughs> neo-Nazi, some of them. And Moms for Liberty, of course, has turned into a fairly important political group for the Republicans and for the Republican candidates who all auditioned before them. But one of the people that you mentioned is Ryan Walters, the Oklahoma Superintendent of Public Instruction, who's called Teachers Unions Terrorist Organizations. And at the Philadelphia summit, he went on to say, you know who else was called a terrorist group, an extremist group? Those founding fathers. That's who you are today. You are the most patriotic pro-American group in the country right now. Now, this guy has, just a few days ago, was asked about his attack on Black Lives Matter and on um, critical race theory, that how do you teach the Tulsa massacre in which about maybe two, three hundred African-Americans were slaughtered and burned alive by a white mob back in, I think, 1921. And uh, he gave the most Orwellian answer, basically saying, well, you can teach it at school, but you can't say that race was involved. What's happening yeah. to the country? I mean, seriously. I, if I really deeply knew the answer, uh, I would hope that I would, I would have some better ideas on how to fix it at the moment. But yeah, what we're, what we've been seeing sort of generally across the board is uh, when it comes to some of the more intense ideological wings of the conservative movement, the you know kind of folks that call teachers unions. Uh, terrorist groups flippantly or, you know, go speak to a group that has been, you know, categorized by Southern Poverty Law Center as an anti-government extremist group and, you know, celebrate that fact. You know, you have folks that sort of think along these lines that have adopted a certain kind of what 
I often call like brain poisoning, uh, seeking positions in local, regional, state-level governments. Um, and that strategy isn't new. And oftentimes a lot of the groups that are supporting people like this aren't new either. Uh, you look at something like Moms for Liberty, the Heritage Foundation, uh, the Leadership Institute, both Reagan-era conservative think tanks, uh, just you know, throwing huge amounts of support and money towards these groups, uh, which are in turn supporting these kind of folks. Um, and it's, you know, I I think back to like when the religious right used to be very gung ho about these kind of strategies, where, you know, I, I can't tell you how many values voter summits or uh, you know road to majority, uh, you know Ralph Reed events that I would go to, and they would you know, coach all these activists and say, you have to get involved in the school boards. You have to get involved in, you know, the city government because, you know, generally speaking, I think that these kind of folks don't face a lot of opposition. Uh, there's not a whole, you know, massive gob of uh, political money spent across the spectrum on these kind of races. Um, so people can have these, fringe views or, or extreme views and play to a narrower slice of uh, the constituency they're trying to represent. And oftentimes the general engagement for these positions is so low um, that they're able to just sort of waltz into them uh, with enough support. And in the same way, uh, you know, we've also seen these movements or people that come from this sort of wing of, ideology appealing to people who are in elected office that maybe have some sympathies or some favors due, uh, you know, whether it be from primaries or earlier political experience to some of those more hardcore ideological uh, parts of the GOP. And, and similarly getting appointments, you know, you look at the, just the, the wild crew of people that someone like Ron DeSantis, for example, has pulled in or, um, you know, my home state, Arkansas, what Sarah Huckabee Sanders has done and the kind of folks that she's appointed in, uh, one of them who was also at that Moms for Liberty conference on the same panel. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's kind of a ground up play. And we're seeing the modern conservative movement and all the, you know, major donors that are behind it, uh, you know, really kind of flooding the zone, both financially and with resources uh, to kind of have that ground up play, because even if they, you know, I suspect, you know, understand that they, you know, are, do not have broad public sympathy, uh, you know, a lot of their policy positions polling to be generally unpopular uh, on a national front, they still think that, you know, if they can capture enough states or local or regional governments, that can provide enough resistance or even enough uh, firepower to get their agenda through anyway, even if on the federal level, um, you know, those elected officials or agencies or whatever are not bought into whatever agenda items they may have in mind. Well, Jared Holder, thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Great to be here. And again, I'll be speaking with Jared Holder, who's a senior research manager at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, where he researches hate and extremist movements in the United States and their relationship to the Internet. He specializes in alt-right and so-called new-right media, in addition to the larger culture and influence of right-wing social media. And he has an article of the Daily Beast, Shame Went to Die at Mums for Liberty, Philadelphia Summit. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.